Uh, good evening, everybody. Well, welcome to the LSE and welcome to this uh, literary festival event on One School, Two Visions. My name is uh, Simon Glendinning and I'm the Professor of European Philosophy in the European Institute here at LSE. And you won't know this, uh, but I wasn't originally down to chair this event. Uh, indeed, I'm probably not well qualified to do so by being still a relative newcomer to the LSE. The person who was to chair this event was anything but that. My friend and colleague, Professor Morris Fraser, had been lined up to chair this. Uh, as I'm afraid, tragically and sadly, Morris died in February. No one would have been uh, more suitable than him for this event. Morris had been a student here in the 1970s, in a time when LSE students were renowned for their political activism. And Morris was a serious activist. He loved telling me about the uh, student union meetings in the old theatre, with the, the right sitting on the right and the left sitting on the left, baying at each other. Morris sat on the right, which was quite unusual for somebody who was later to become an academic here, perhaps, as we'll see. And he spent his adult life in, in some kind of curious dismay about the foolishness, naivety, and self-righteousness of the left. Often enough, he would relate to me some position or stance or stand of some leftist somewhere, inevitably concluding, you couldn't make it up. <coughs> but he loved politics, and he loved the LSE, despite finding its faculty so continuously and predictably left-wing. Well, after his time as a student here, Morris's political life continued and he was eventually to serve as a special advisor to three successive British Foreign Secretaries in Conservative governments between 1989 and 95, which makes him the longest serving special advisor at the Foreign Office ever. In 1995, though, he returned to the LSE to teach, to teach in what was then the new European Institute. He was later to become promoted to Professor of Practice there, a title he was uh, rightly proud of. Equally proudly, he became head of the European Institute in 2013 until shortly before his death. And he gave everything to, uh, to the European Institute. And indeed, Europe was uh, of special importance to him, and in particular, Anglo-French relations. He'd been educated at the Lycée Francais in South Kensington, and he became chair of the Franco-British Council, vice chair, sorry, of the Franco-British Council. At LSE, he was the uh, program director for the European Institute's double master's degree with Sciences Po. And he was made Chevalier de la Légion d'Honneur in 2008. Now, Morris was the long-term director of the LSE's public lecture series on Europe, utilizing his extensive professional experience and contacts to make the school the premier UK platform for public debate on Europe. He was both a devoted teacher and he inspired students to help bridge the gap 
between the practical world of policymaking and that of academia for successive generations of the European Institute students. And if you look at the website, uh, the comments from his former students are extraordinary. So Morris was uh, widely liked and admired, both by staff and by students and across public life. He was very well read and he had a range of intellectual interests and discussion with him was uh, just lovely, uh, which one can't say about many academics. He was very supportive and a respectful colleague and uh, we do miss him. Uh, this, I know that this festival has been dedicated to him and I reconfirm that dedication here as we're going to turn to a discussion of the LSE that he loved with two more friends of Morris's to guide us through it in tonight's event. One School, Two Visions with um, Mick Cox from LSE Ideas who's writing a history of the LSE at the moment and Chandran Kukathas from the Government Department who has ideas of his own. So, uh, let's welcome them uh, for tonight's discussion. Thank you very much. Well, I, I'm going to go first, yes? Yes, yes okay. Perhaps I'll just tell them a bit. We're going to uh, have yeah. contributions from both speakers at, in different times, different lengths. And yeah. uh, when they finish their little bits, um, we're going to open the floor at that point. So, rather than keeping you under wraps for an hour or so hmm. before you get a chance to say something. We're going to let you in at, uh, at various points throughout. But Mick is going to start with talking about the establishment of the school yeah. and its purpose. And then uh, we can have questions on that. And then we'll move on uh, with something from Chandran. Yeah. Mick. Thanks, Simon. Thank you. And also solidarity in, with your comments on uh, our dear friend departed. I, I remember sitting once at an academic board meeting and I was saying to... Uh, to him, uh, think, writing a history of the school, or trying to, and he said, for God's sake, don't just make it a left-wing rant. Uh, remember the anti-totalitarians at the school. And by that, of course, he meant Hayek, Oakeshott, and uh, Sir Karl Popper. So that, I, that's how I remember Morris. And many, many interesting conversations, he said, a very humane and decent person, and much missed. And as you said, Simon, also a person who much loved the school, as indeed do I and many other people, past and present and hopefully future. Let me just say a few words about the origins of the school. I've said it many times before and it's been talked about very much in the histories of the school, including the, the very great history of the school by our eighth director, Ralph Darendorf. But I just want to make one clear point, seems to me, about the origins of the school, uh, that unlike all, all other universities, uh, schools of education, higher education, uh, the LSE, or the school as it was called, and notice the word school, it wasn't called a university, and that was the reason for doing that. It, I think it started as an idea. Uh, I've looked back in the kind of history of higher education, going back, I think, to 1187, when Henry II said, I don't want you to go to France any longer, we'll establish Oxford, which is an interesting substitution for Paris, I think. Um, but the LSE started as basically as an idea. I mean, that's quite interesting. Most of the others grew organically out of local communities or for various purposes. But I think it started really as an idea. And without the idea, I don't think the LSE would have been created. An idea 
held in common by many people at the time, but four in particular, who are of relationship of what I want to say briefly this evening. Uh, and you know those as well, the, the two Webbs, of course, Sidney and Beatrice Webb, who, who met uh, earlier in the, in the 1890s and subsequently got married. Um, George Bernard Shaw, the great Irish Protestant play, playwright, uh, who I was talking about earlier on tonight, uh, one of the, another great founder of the school, although typical of Shaw, of course, he had many criticisms to make straight away of what the Webbs were up to. And, of course, quite often forgotten the first professor of government here, a very great man, actually, about, I think, much more ought to be written and known, is Graham Wallace, who uh, I think is, gets left out because of the power of the Webbs and, of course, the, the great influence of Shaw. Now, basically, what was this idea? Now, there's been much discussion about this. Two, two people had a lot to do with the origins of the school, uh, Lucy Mayer and later Sidney Kane, who was one of the directors of the school. They both wrote something about the origins of the school, as indeed does Ralph Darendorf in his own 1995 history. There's much discussion about what was the school all about, what do they really want, what was they really trying to create, and there's been some discussion about that, and it will go on, no dear. But I kind of put it in three ways. Firstly, it's a negative, it's not like Oxford. I mean, running through like a red thread through much of this, it mustn't be like Oxford. Graham Wallace, who I mentioned earlier on, said, you know, I learned many things at Oxford, but not very much. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I learned how to conjugate Virgil, my Greek was excellent, my Latin prose was beautiful, but I didn't know anything about the poor laws. I didn't know why people were poor. I didn't know about what an industrial society looked like. So I think first and foremost, it's not like Oxford. To put it another way, uh, without being too sectarian towards our colleagues up in Oxford, of course, I wouldn't be that for one moment, um, uh, we're not an ivory tower. Not an ivory tower. In fact, the very positioning of the LSC in Sydney was quite clear about this. It had to be in a certain part of... It A, had to be in London, and it had to be in a certain part of London near where things happened, which basically meant Westminster down there and the city of London over there. It needed to be at the very heart of power, the very heart of London. I think secondly, very quickly, as we all know, is entirely focused on economics and political science, what they called the real world. In essence, the whole point of it was to engage with that real world, whether it's poverty, whether it's accountancy, and all the other things that were earlier taught here. And the research led, but practical in orientation. There's a big debate today about, you know, should an academic be basically writing, you know, very learned articles in journals that only academics read, or should they actually be engaging in what you might call knowledge which actually has a practical outcome, policy consequences. We can have that debate going on for a very long time, I know. But, but I think basically, the, the, at least the vision of Sidney and Beatrice Webb and others at the time, that knowledge was good for its own sake, but what's knowledge ultimately for? It is to do certain things with that kind of knowledge which you had acquired. Beatrice, of course, got very deeply involved, as did Sydney, in trade union history and talking about local government in great detail. And of course, Beatrice was much engaged for seven years until 1909-1910 in the trying to get the reform of the Poor Law Act. To put it another way, the whole point of the LSE was to talk to power and to change power, to change the way power acted and the way power itself uh, did what it did with the power. And secondly, although we could have a debate about this, to change the world, though of course the way they thought about changing the world was in, in their very Fabian way, very slow, 
uh, in, in the Fabian sense of the word, but nonetheless to change the world. In other words, the purpose of the school wasn't just to accept the status quo, it was to change, challenge, criticize and engage that status quo, to constantly test it against what you might call scientific knowledge, economic knowledge and, and, and the rest. And I think this did make the school different. It did make the school different. I think the, the way the school was created either in relationship to across the road there at King's or up the road there in South Kensington or, 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 or UCL, all great institutions in their own right without doubt. I think they clearly had a focus on where it would sit and where ultimately where it would sit both in the University of London and within London generally. But something else was all, also part of this and I think it can get missed and it certainly gets missed a bit I think in some of those histories which I've already mentioned. I've been through the letters of Sidney and Beatrice in great detail. I've certainly read with enormous interest Beatrice Webb's fantastically interesting and revealing diaries. And when you look through much of that and much more beside, there's no question that there was a political purpose to the school. There was a political purpose to the school. After all, Sidney had been engaged with Fabian socialism in a very serious way, even while he was working at the colonial office since the, since the 18, late 1870s and uh, early 1880s. Beatrice came over to Fabian Socialism later. George Bernard Shaw was a very, very powerful Fabian speaker and writer. Indeed, he was much influenced by Marx, much more so than was Sidney and Beatrice, I would say. And, and, and to some degree, and Graham Wallace as well, although later on, of course, he changed his mind. But put it in that context, and this is get back to the idea of the idea, the idea, in a sense, was to see and to utilize knowledge, scientific understanding, whatever you want to call it, to bring what Sidney thought was almost the inevitable transition from individualist bourgeois society, whatever you want to call it, laissez-faire 19th century kind of society, towards what they broadly defined as collectivism. Now, they meant it to happen very slowly, there was going to be no revolution, no proletarian class struggle, nobody was going to throw bricks at policemen, nobody was going to stand outside the American embassy and shout slogans. It was to be a very slow, almost irresistible, almost unnoticeable process of transition, which, would, which he already, be, already thought that industrial society was producing this anyway. The thing was to now train, if you like, almost an elite professional middle classes, bring them to the knowledge which itself would gradually and slowly move society, however slowly but, but irresistibly, towards what their ultimate purpose was. And I think the school fits within that, although in a complicated way, in a complicated way. But I think that was part of it. Many other things drove the webs, efficiency, empire, eugenics, there's many, many other aspects to their political thinking. But it seems to me to abstract the webs and their own politics from where they saw the LSE within their framing of the political debates at the time. I think it simply misses a very, very large point. Now, one of the reasons it gets missed clearly, because Sidney particularly was a very dab hand, quite often not exactly at hiding what he was up to, but in a sense saying, don't worry, <laughs> don't worry. You know, this is a school for science, this is a school for education, Politics is one side, the kind of science of study of society and economy is on the other side. And also, if you look at the people who were appointed in the first few years, there aren't too many radicals amongst them, to be perfectly honest. You know, Railway economics and Mr. Ackworth are not exactly Bolshevik. No, Mr. Foxworth on, you know, bank, you know, all these, there's a kind of really quite conservative, quote-unquote, individualist 
quality to much of the early faculty. Sidney genuinely believed, you may seem naive now, to think that basic knowledge would, however, nonetheless, pull you in a certain direction. If you like, the facts will make you free. Put it another way, the facts will make you ultimately a collectivist. Even if some of the facts are individualist and are uttered by people like Foxworth and others. Now, the Webbs did take great care, of course, in firstly appointing a range of different people to lead and teach in the school who could hardly be defined on the left. I mean, look at the first two directors of the school. The, the rather very interesting Hewins, about which much now has been written, he came from the Oxford School of Economics, not from the Cambridge and Marshallian School of Economics. He's a much more interesting character than sometimes it appears in some of the histories. Um, he did actually have an, a very great interest in social questions and social problems. And actually, he, he talked very openly quite often about the working classes and the improvement of the working classes. But nonetheless, as we all know, Hewins went on and wrote this wonderful two volumes called An Apologia of an Imperialist in 1929, which, of course, you know, casts him down as an imperialist. So you can hardly say he's on the left, but he's an interesting character. And then, of course, he was followed by, I think, the even more famous Halford Mackinder, who led the great geopolitician, the great geographer of his time. Huge influence, by the way. So you could say, well, the Webbs are very careful in who they appointed to the school and indeed to, the, to direct the school and who indeed... And the other thing was, and I mean, this gets back to the old question of money, Sydney knew the school was, had hardly any money. I mean, you know, going back time and time and time again, my goodness, how did the place ever survive? You know, we got the original grant from the Hutchinson uh, trusteeship. Very little actually was used, it seems, in the end. I mean, there's a lot of talk about it was founded by a poor man up in Derbyshire who shot himself, the Fabian Socialist. In fact, I think only one twentieth that was actually in the end used. Much of the money, of course, came from student fees. Things have not changed at all, by the way, in that regard. Student fees were then, and still are today, the most important source of income for the school. But nonetheless, Sydney and Beatrice and others were very adept in the sense of what I can put it rather crudely, tapping the rich. And in some senses, what large part of their life was doing was kind of hosting dinner parties and hoping that Rothschild would leave £5,000 behind, which actually he did once. And constantly they were talking to people in the city. So again, the respectability cover was there. And I think that again has maybe obscured the, the political purpose. But it was always, it seems to me, there. Now, it seems to me really that the identity of the school with the Webbs is really quite central to thinking about what the school became. Sydney remained very deeply involved in the school really until the late 1930s. He made, all the major, he made all the major appointments on the directorships. It was he who had to tell poor William Beveridge in the late 30s, time is up, William, you have to move on. And it was he, too, who then appointed our next director, Carl Saunders, the great, the, great, the great demographer. So he remained very much associated with the school, very much identified with the school. Now, I said in another lecture very quickly, that if the Webbs had done what a lot of socialists have done historically, namely sell out, <laughs> which is what the left has quite frequently been very good at doing, if they had sold out, you could say, well, fine. But actually, the Webbs seemed to move more to the left rather than to anywhere else. I mean, 1918, the first constitution of the Labour Party, who wrote it? Clause 4, remember that? Sidney Webb, the socialist Commonwealth. Dear Sidney, pen the whole damn thing. 1923, there's a wonderful and interesting book, at least, I don't know if it's wonderful, but it's an interesting book, written by both Sidney and Beatrice. What's it called? The Decay of Capitalist Civilization. That hardly seems like they're somehow finding a home in the Liberal Democrats. 
1936, what did, this, what did the Webbs end up doing? Writing a huge two volumes, well worth not reading, I'd have to recommend it not to be read, called The Soviet Union, A New Civilization, with a question mark. The question mark, by the way, got removed in the 1937 edition. I know, because I've got both editions, because I've got very geeky on all these kinds of things. And nor was this all. You know, many of the appointments which were made at the school, the great R.H. Tawney, I think one of the great people who've been at the school, by the way, appointed at the school through the, through the beneficence of the Rotten Tata Foundation in 1912. You know, amazing kind of contribution of India to the history of this school. And, in, and, and people from India played a huge role in the history of the school. And the school has played a huge role in the history of India, certainly in the first 20 years. Clement Attlee, and later Prime Minister, was teaching here. Again, he got appointed in 1912, came back in 1919, 1920. Hugh Dalton, the, the uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer in the Labour government after 45, and, until he released too much information too quickly. Uh, Evan Durbin, a very close political advisor. Uh, the great Eileen Powell, the economic historian of the 1930s. And of course, I suppose most famously, although whether he was typical of the school, but in certain impact he had on the school, of course, was Harold Lasky. You know, one of the great figures and, and one of the defining figures of the history of the school. And not at it end there. Lasky, of course, was followed by Ralph Miliband. And when the new Department of Social Policy was created, it was led by a new professor who had neither an O-level, an A-level, a degree, or a PhD. His name was Richard Titmus, one of the greatest figures, it seems to me, in the history of this school, and certainly one of the great changers of British society uh, for the better. And others have also pointed to the impact of the LSE, not only in Britain, but also in the Third World. I mean, the impact of the LSE in the th what we came to call the third world rather patronizing in the 50s, cannot be underestimated. And I think this was particularly true for, for India. I mean, it's a very interesting relationship between Lasky and Indian students. I've just been going through all the detail. In the, in the 20s and 30s, at least, the biggest group of overseas students were, were those coming from India. And Lasky, in turn, had an enormous influence on, on these Indian students. And many of those, of course, went back then to, to actually lead or to, to influence and shape the creation of the newly independent socialist India, for good or for ill, Krishnan Menon and many, many others uh, besides. There were many others, of course, who were not on the left, who went back to India, but that was a very important part of it. And finally, really to end my, my, comment, my first comments, at least, on this, and I'll end here. Uh, you know, I always said, if you write the history from above, you end up with one history. If you write the history from below, you may end up with a more interesting history. And it seems to me quite often it's, very, it's more easy to write the history through the directors or through the school governors or through whoever else has been at the top of the school. You've also got to write the history of the school through its students. Uh, that can get left out far too easily, it seems to me. Uh, and I've been trying to do that as well. I was Sue, Sue Donnelly, who's, who's a great expert at the school. I remember this, Sue, you said to me, if I'm going to try and do the history of the school, try and bring the students in. It struck me as a very good piece of advice. And I'm trying to do that. Now, it's not to say that every student arrived here with a copy of the Communist Manifesto in their back pocket. It was nothing like that. But there's no question that a lot of students were attracted to the LSE because they thought the LSE was different. And this, this was particularly true in the 1930s. I mean, there's a very interesting history still to be read, to, to be written of, of LSE students in the 1930s, because there was an, an enormous radicalization that occurred here in the 1930s under the impact of the Great Depression, under the impact of the USSR. And that's a very interesting part of it. And of course, 
In that period, I've come across two of the most interesting communists in the school who made their mark later in life. One was Jack Simon, who did anthropology here, who went on to become the theoretician of the South African Communist Party. A very interesting man. He got expelled, of course. <laughs> and, and Frank Meyer. Frank Meyer was then the leader of the, communist, the American communist in Britain. He went on to become a neoconservative and actually was a great inspiration for Ronald Reagan in the 1950s. But again, it tells you something. About the, about the character of some of the many of the students who are coming here. And later on, by the way, after World War II, another great communist came here called Alf Sherman, who went on, of course, to be the principal uh, speechwriter for Sir Keith Joseph and one of Mrs. Thatcher's closest ideological gurus. It doesn't matter where they ended up, I suppose, but they were all here at the school. So, and then, of course, there's the 1960s. And I'll simply end on this particular point because it was referred to earlier on. I mean, I, I remember talking to Tony Giddens about this, one of our, one of our directors, of course, uh, in, in an earlier time. And Tony said, you know, nobody remembers all the detail, but certain things stick. It's what I call the taxi driver test. You kind of get dropped off at the LSE in a taxi if you can afford it, which of course I can't. But you get dropped off and they say, well, the LSE, oh, there's still bloody lot of communists there. It's almost like, you know, 40, 50 years of the last has not happened. Mm -hmm. But what many still remember is the 60s. It's kind of imprinted itself on the image of the LSE and of, of the school. And I think, again, that is added to this sense that the LSE is different has shaped political debate in this country and abroad and shaped it in a certain political way. That, that uh, left, left socialist origin, though, yes. it was quite real. I mean, one of the stories I know about is uh, of Leonard Wolfe, yeah. husband of Virginia Woolf, oh. who had some association with, with the school but was unable really to get a foot in yes. as an academic because he was too critical of the Soviet Union. And he was anti-totalitarian. <laughs> so, I mean, I think, you know, we can't think that these were all sort of uh, benefic beneficent uh, communists. They were, they were pretty hard. Oh, some of them were quite Stalinist, yeah. no, without doubt. And, so, and the, 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 the webs were. But the webs, webs are an interesting case for another reason uh, that I just want to ask you mm. quickly about before we move, move to uh, people in the audience. Is that, yes, they were, they were these sort of um, uh, Fabian socialists, sort of positivists, who thought, well, if you get all the facts in we can make good decisions. It was sort of a, a, a liberation through knowledge. Mm. But they were also evangelical Christians. And there is no, as you know, there's no theology department in the school. Mm. And I just wonder if you could just say a brief word about the relationship between their rather fierce Christianity Oh, are you talking here of of the webs of the webs and and they're mm. they're holding off from well, making the school in I, any respect. Reflect. Yeah, okay. I, I maybe I'll dispute your, 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 your not not your question, but the the, the, the empirical basis of your question. Um, the webs were kind of evangelical in a political sense, for sure. Um, uh, Beatrice was never anything other than totally certain that history was going to move in a certain direction. And later on, she was almost, you might say, religious in inverted commas in relationship to the Soviet Union and the experiment of the Soviet Union. There's absolutely no doubt. I mean, the, the, the Webb's belief in the, the Soviet system of planning and the Soviet system as the new civilization, that was very real and in that sense religious in the political ideological sense. However, in terms, did they have a relationship with God and were they ever, ever interested in religion or the metaphysical... Oh, very difficult to make that case. Certainly Beatrice, when you read her diaries, she went through this kind of 
you know, late 19th century questioning, what does one believe in if God no longer exists? Darwin has proven something about man and the origin of man, which actually doesn't correspond to the creationist arguments. And so you can see in her own personal life, she's desperately struggling with the notion of belief and what does a person, particularly a woman, do with her life in this kind of world when she's looking for a new role. But I don't really find terribly much on the side of God within the Fabians. George Bernard Shaw, of course, was a profoundly strong uh, uh, atheist. And a couple of his own plays, of course, were pretty dedicated to proving that God did not exist. So I don't know. I've always felt that the school was really, and to be perfectly honest, I I always thought this was a great, great thing about the school. Um, You know, it was a pure, I mean, fundamentally a secular institution. And I... I can't see very much, unless you want to use religion in some wider sense. Well, I wasn't, but, but maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. Anyway, so um, anybody have any questions on this early period of the school? And you'll have to wait for a mic if you do. Otherwise, we can just move on. Go on, somebody. No. Yes, one here. I'll run over with the mic. <coughs> Thank you. So um, I'm a parent with, with a child who's just joined the LSE oh, yeah. in September. So um, I, I'm fascinated by the early history of the LSE with regards to it being so practice-orientated, you yes. know, wanting to be where things happen. Yes. And I can see, and I can see that, um, given its, its location and all of that. But you also said that um, in academia there is this ongoing tussle between research and its utility. Huh. Um, yes. Now, a political orientation on that, I just wondered what your view would be on the discussion around, well, utility is important, but utility, what does utility mean, changes mm. from time to time. Mm. And often it's the, the elites in society that decide what is useful anyway. And I just wondered if that political dimension of utility and mm. knowledge um, gets discussed at the LSE, uh, and is it a yeah. current debate? No, it's, it's, a good, yeah. it's a very good question. I mean, very briefly, I mean, the school I'm talking about, the school I mentioned in my brief comments at the very beginning, however very rapid, is, is in some ways maybe a school that no longer exists. I mean, if, one, if I was to be perfectly honest, do I have a nostalgia not for a golden age, but nostalgia for a certain kind of period of time when there were discussions and debates going on in a certain kind of way, and not just debates on the left, obviously, the debates between the left, within the left, and actually, of course, between the left and the, lib- and the liberals at this school, particularly the liberal economists, who we'll talk about later on. So I, I think, you know, the nature of the world in which we are now living is so changed, so transformed, for all the obvious reasons, the end of the Cold War, the Hayekian economic revolution of the 1970s, the free market transformations of the world, globalisation... All of that, I think, has changed. And the, and the very character, I think, even of the students who are coming here has probably changed to some degree as well, to a very large degree, for all sorts of... For good or ill, for good or ill. I, don't, I, I pass no judgment on, on what's happening. Um, so I think the first thing I'd have to say is that the school I'm talking about is, is maybe a school which has a strong tradition, which I'm very keen on, and I want those traditions never to be forgotten because I think a school or an institution that forgets its history loses itself. Um, and and I, I'm very strong on this, and this is certainly going to come out of the history I write about the importance of tradition and remembering where the school came from and why that's an important part of still the broader tradition, even if the collectivist project is no longer uh, 
there, there to be grabbed on. The end of the Cold War and many other things changed all that, I think, pretty profoundly, and maybe forever, I don't know. But the, other, the larger question you're asking, really, is, is still, uh, still an ongoing one. I, ha I have personally very strong views on this, which are not necessarily those held by those who run the school. Uh, all of them are very nice people, though I'm sure they all are, and I know them also, I couldn't say that. But I think, there is a, I think the inner tension is between knowledge, knowledge which actually one can convey to the student, where teaching becomes the critical and fundamental part of what the academic sees him or herself doing. And there's some great teachers at the school today, as there have always been. But I think some of the incentives which are driving academics today are in part leading many academics, and it's not their fault, away from what I see as one of the fundamental purposes of the LSE. When you come back to all of the people I mentioned, it's equally true of those on the liberal side of the debate, like Lionel Robbins and many others like that, the one thing that comes back about nearly all of them, they were great teachers. And they loved teaching their first year students more than any other group of people. Now, those were the kinds of things which I am talking about across the ideological divide. My concern, and I've said this many times in public, so I'm not revealing any great secrets, is <coughs> that the, the incentives being given to academics today are leading them in, in different directions which I, I don't think alienate them from the students, because I still think we've got great teachers in the school, but the incentives they have at the moment, it seems to me, are leading them more and more into the deeper profound areas and recesses of research, which I think necessarily doesn't contradict good teaching, but if the incentives are so skewed in one area, it can actually lead them away from that. And I think we do, all institutions of higher education face that problem today, it seems to me. Well, thanks very much, Mick. We'll move on now. Chandran's uh, going to come in. And it's interesting, the story you've told so far, although it's a 20th century story in many respects, yeah. has a very 19th century feel to it as well. <laughs> well, and, that's where I am, really. Yeah, uh, uh, <laughs> so, and I think, Chandran, you're going to take us through some of the 20th century. Well, I'm going to start with the 17th century. Quite right, as you should. Just, uh, since someone's raised the stakes. <laughs> uh, so I thought I'd make some remarks, firstly, in, in the first set of remarks I'll offer, about um, the, the tradition in which we should situate the LSE. And then, in the second set of remarks, mm. I'll say something more specifically about three figures, uh, Hayek, uh, Oakeshott, and, and Karl Popper, uh, but, but let me say something first about the, the, the context in which we might consider the LSE and its history. And I'll start perhaps by reminding you of the LSE's motto, uh, which is to know the causes of things, uh, rerum cognoscere um, tells us. Um, and also the full name of the school, which is the London School of Economics and Political Science. And I think the science is important, and also the notion of political science is important, because you don't see the term political science used in British universities uh, outside of the LSE, certainly not at, at that time. I mean, the, the, the term has a long history, but you find departments of political science in the United States, but not in, in Britain. And I think the LSE was conceived as, an, as a school of social science, and the science was a very, very practical kind of understanding of science uh, in, in this case. So the reason I want to start with the 17th century is I want to start with Thomas Hobbes, who in his Leviathan uh, gives an account of the human condition in which he says, among other things, what is it that people really need? You know, what is it that is the, the source of the problem? And he says, well, you know, people just don't understand the causes of things. Uh, they don't know the causes of things and therefore they do the wrong thing. 
And what I'm going to explain to you from the very beginning is how the world works. And once we understand how the world works, we'll be able to devise a technology of governance that's going to solve the problem. Now, Hobbes was a very, very important precursor of what, in the 19th century, became the utilitarian tradition. I mean, I think you can draw a kind of line from Hobbes to Jeremy Bentham, who has an enormous influence on John Stuart Mill, obviously. And there are two aspects, I think, of, of Hobbes' influence uh, that are important. One is his influence on the growth of utilitarianism, and the other thing is that he's at the start of the a European revolution in science. So by the time we're looking at the 19th century, what we have is, I mean, not that Hobbes is the sole progenitor of this, is we have a world in which people are starting to think, intellectuals are starting to think in terms of how to govern a society. And in Britain in particular, you get this utilitarian tradition that's emerged. In the rest of Europe, you have the socialist tradition, but the socialist tradition in Germany and in France are quite different. They're much more political. In England, it's predominantly in economics. Mm. That's what English socialism is really about. It's about economics and economic management. Now, what I want to suggest is that the LSC emerges in the 20th century or late 19th century uh, through the, the collaboration of the Webbs and Bernard Shaw and Graham Wallace and others under the influence of these two deep traditions. There's the utilitarian tradition in Britain and there's the socialist tradition. And I think what comes about in the early part of the 20th century is a marrying of those, these two things, which is really given a kind of driving shape by um, the events of the early 20th century and especially by the Russian Revolution. So when you mentioned um, uh, the book by um, the Webbs on the Soviet Union, I mean, that indicates to you how important this particular event was. I mean, Shaw, I think, actually went to Russia. Oh, yeah. He saw what was going on there came back with glowing reports about this, saying, you know, Russia has us whipped. This is the, 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 um, uh, the model that we ought to uh, pursue. And the, the whole drive that I think lies behind the intellectual founders of the LSE was to draw on science, to improve the arts of governance, to produce um, the kind of progress that they were seeing. Ultimately, they thought, you know, in, in the Soviet Union, one thing that's very interesting about this, because it's so driven by the economics, is that the politics really does recede into the background uh, in, a, in a very, in a kind of an interesting way, because um, politics becomes much, much more a matter of technology. How do we figure out what are the best policies? How do we figure out how to uh, bring an end to poverty? How do we figure out the solutions to all kinds of things? And there's a kind of assumption in the um, that there will be a natural congruence between the, um, the political and economic ideals on the one hand and the political practice and interests of the public and of the working class. Now, why one should ever have thought this is, in effect, a bit of a mystery because you know, the world being what it is, it's obviously full of, of conflicts and differences of opinion and differences of interest, differences of class, but I think right through the thinking of the webs and the people who founded the LSE is this thinking that there is this congruence. And I think this uh, understanding or this view is, is still there in the socialist tradition. That somehow thinks that democracy and socialism will go together. And the whole 
point, it seems to me, of democracy is that it's a way of thinking about how you resolve differences among people who are really quite pluralistic in their outlook. And in fact, if you have democracy, the chances are you won't get socialism. You may not get classical liberalism or, or libertarianism either, or conservatism. What you'll probably get is a kind of coming together in the middle with some sort of compromise. But the webs, I think, assume that these two things would just um, go together. So the early part of the history of the LSE, I think, is really guided by this sort of thinking. And it's also, in part, inspired um, by Soviet central planning. Uh, I think for the rest of the socialist world, the, the fascination with central planning goes on for quite a long time. But mm. by the time you get to the 50s and 60s, some of this is changing, partly as a result of some of the figures that we'll look at in the second half of this discussion, mm. Hayek and Popper and Oakshot, um, because they start to call this into question. And there's a kind of socialist reaction to this in the work of people like Anthony Crossland who come along and say, well, actually, maybe we need some sort of compromised version of socialism. What's that now known as English ethical socialism is really a form of what we would now call uh, market socialism. So I think you get you know, a kind of development uh, along the way as the history of the school uh, unfolds and the influence of this alternative strand becomes more and more important. Now, I think when maybe this is something we'll come to towards the end, mm. when we get to the later part of the 20th century and the modern day, mm. what we'll see is the influence of some of these other figures, uh, like, um, like Hayek, but I think the utilitarianism that's always been there mm. will be seen to be here still, mm. very much at the, at the heart of the way people associated with the LSE think about government, think about policy, think about governance. Chandran, could I just uh, take you back to something you said early on? I'm really glad you went back to uh, the sort of 17th century origins of some of these thoughts. I'd said earlier on that I thought that one of the features of the webs would it, was that it was about if you get the facts right, get all the facts in, know the world as it were, then you can make good decisions, a sort of, a sort of positivism there. Mm -hmm. But the way you turned that was to say that the work of science could then produce government as technology. Mm -hmm. Could you explain a bit that idea of uh, why, you, in what sense or how to understand that idea of government as something technological or as technology? Well, again, although this is not what you'd find in the web particularly, but I think it's there in Hobbes and it's there in the utilitarian tradition. And that is, there's a, a kind of sense that really what you need is to figure out how to um, bring about, given that this is the theme for this week, a kind of utopia. And the, the conception of utopia here is a world in which... Um, in some ways, deep conflicts have been eradicated. In Hobbes's conception, the idea is an understanding of institutions which will solve the political problem. You won't then have the conflict. In a way, it's surprising to think of this in, the, in this way because we're more likely to associate this with, say, a Marxist view. You might say, well, Marx is really a, a utopian thinker because he's imagining a future state in which um, you know, scarcity has been abolished and class differences have been abolished uh, and you know, human conflict has been abolished. Um, Hobbes doesn't think that human nature will go away, but he thinks that the institutions will eliminate the problems that arise out of it. And I think that the, the whole utilitarian tradition is thinking very much in these terms. And I think 
this is also something that you'll see in you know, early 20th century socialism. There's a sense that if you get the institutions right, you will change the way people behave. So you call it, mm -hmm. uh, so if it's all about, as it were, correct institutional design, mm -hmm. then, uh, then you think, we could think then as, of the institutions as a, as a kind of technology or yes, a, applied yes. science in that, in that Exactly, sense. it's social science. Right. Mm -hmm. and, okay. and for that, you would need an elite. And yes. I, I think the point I'd make about the webs is that wonderful people, though they were in many ways, and strange in many other ways, I have to say that as well, I mean, I think they were quite consciously, this was quite consciously an elitist project. I mean, they actually, I think they said quite clearly and openly, we don't want to create the LSE you know, to, to, to educate the uneducated. We want to educate the educated, you know, the, the thinking members of society. They were pretty, pretty damn clear about that. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing, I remember there's a great quote from Sidney Webb, if I get this one right. He said, there are 2,000 people in Britain who make every decision and we have to try and influence as many of those as possible. There's this kind of sense that you, you work within the elite to change the elite. Even, I mean, after all, they work with the Liberals, they work with Winston Churchill, they work with Lord Haldane, they work with a whole group of people they call the coefficients to think about grand strategy. You know, the, so it was, and, and actually later on, what they, you mentioned the USSR very, very quickly. Later on, Beatrice, I think it's either Beatrice or Sydney are both together, because it's quite often difficult to tell them apart, at least in the intellectual sense. Uh, they said, well, actually, the USSR is, in a sense, what the Fabians were after. Now, rather than seeing it as a contradiction to the Fabian, it's quite worrying in a way, if, that, if that's the kind of conception. But I think it's actually once you've got rid of the revolutionary stuff, once you've got rid of the Bolshevism, once you've got rid of the utopianism, once you've got rid of that earlier stuff, which is the Soviet Revolution in the Trotsky, Bukharin, Lenin, once you've got a good, good old pragmatic Stalin who knows how to administer things, then maybe you've kind of got to the point now you can start thinking of this, and it's a planned, a, a planned rational society. There is an extraordinary it. literature, as you were beginning to relate, of, of the Beatles had back in the USSR, but it was back from the USSR, which was yes. the, this extraordinary genre, all across Western Europe, oh, gosh, but yes. um, absolutely massive. Uh, the LSE and, and Lasky was another one who, who sort of... Uh, Lasky was a bit more critical of the Soviet Union, to be fair. I mean, to be fair, to, I mean, in the sense that the Webs almost became totally uncritical, right. and sure, sure, certainly. Uh, Lasky, I think, maintained a critical distance and certainly fell out very badly later on with the, with the Soviet, Soviet ideologists, with the Communist Party in Great Britain. On the other hand, the webs and the shores, I think, got very, very close. Right. Extremely close. And by the way, there's just one other piece of empirical evidence. Is Ivan Maisky was the Soviet ambassador in that period. He was a very interesting man, and his diaries were published last year by edited by a man called Gabriel Garodetsky. And he's got some wonderful insights there into the webs and to Beatrice. And almost, I think, he thinks of Beatrice in particular as really being a comrade. You know, in, in a kind of non-communist communist, but she really wasn't that. But there's a sense in which that closeness was was really there, and uh, it's an interesting part of the history of the LSE. So maybe a more difficult part of the LSE too, as well. Any 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 questions on the on the period we've just been through? <coughs> You're all quiet. Okay. Well, quiet, we can, we can move on. We're going to actually. If you think that at the moment we've just churned through some of the early history. We're going to look, in the, as it were, in the second half at, at some of the big names of, of the uh, middle century of the, <laughs> of, of the LSE, and in particular yeah. Hayek, Robbins, 
oak shot sure. popper and and make you're going to start with the first well, two high yeah, and robin I'll be, I'll be very quick really i mean you know i mean one of the interesting things at the school is its diversity um, it's not a party school in any sense and one of the extraordinary things that i find about the school um is the pluralism of the place but one of the most interesting things and as i know there's a a historian of the economics department here in the audience. Um, one of the extraordinary things is it's called the London School of Economics and Political Science, but it's also the London School of Economics. And the question is the influence and the power of the economics department in terms not only the history specifically of the school per se, uh, but also in the historical evolution of economics and economic policy in this country. And, I'd, I'd, I'd almost say that one of the most important appointments that was ever made at this school, you had the first great economist, of course, who led it for many, many years, Edwin Cannon, um, who was a very, very interesting man, and about which not enough has been written, but some has been written. Uh, but it, it, then you had an economics interregnum when you had an American who seemed very interesting, I haven't read very much about him, called Alan Young, who sadly died very quickly. And then serendipity and by the accidents of history, much... Much of history is about accidents, I sometimes find, rather than about the great social forces. Uh, serendipity, uh, one of the young people who had been at the school earlier on, an early guild socialist, got wounded in World War I, brilliant man, brilliant lecturer, came back as a very young man to take over the professorship of economics at the school. And I think, if I were to say... Who in the pantheon of the greats or the important people at the school has had as much influence, if not more, than anybody else? I think it is undoubtedly Lionel Robbins. Um, the, the more I've kind of thought about the history of the school and, and the impact that any one single individual had, not only on the history of this school, but on the history of Britain, I, I, I'd actually put Lionel Robbins very high up there. Not just in his own writings, he never got a Nobel Prize, which is interesting, for economics, I and mean, maybe his work had gone way beyond that, because the prize wasn't awarded in 72 in economics. It's actually what he did, the people he influenced, the power of his lecturing, and one other thing, he appointed Hayek. I mean, this was really quite crucial. I mean, now, Robbins, without going into all the detail, had, as they say, Robbins had sunk, drunk very deeply of the Austrian tradition, as we know, in the 1920s. He was a brilliant, he's a brilliant linguist. His German was absolutely fluent. He went to Austria and he studied what you might call under the profoundly theoretical anti-Marxists in the 1920s in Austria. And this was a very well-developed and brilliant group. They knew their Marxism because they had to fight it within Austria, within the continental tradition, which is very un-English, actually. You know, the English don't do that. Actually, in some senses, Robbins did find out a, what the Marxists were saying, and more importantly, what the anti-collectivists and the anti-Marxists were saying, particularly people like von Mises, who's crucial to the history of the school indirectly, Bern Bewerk, and many, many others, of which Hayek is part of that Austrian school, the marginalist school, but the free marketeers, the fundamentalists of, of, that, of that school. It's a, it's a profoundly interesting group of people, and, Hayek, and he brought Hayek here. Hayek did, first did some lectures here, and then, of course, was appointed... To, I think, to the Took Professorship of Economics. And, and Hayek, although, I mean, some people said you couldn't quite understand what he was ever saying, no, and you may not agree with what he was saying, and his book on the Great Depression has been much criticised, and, and, of course, there's, there's all sorts of things you might say about him. I think the combination of, of Robbins, this powerful figure in the school, a brilliant lecturer, 
uh, a hugely charismatic figure with a very powerful personality. I call him one of the big beasts of the school, and I mean that actually as a compliment, not, a, not as a criticism. And to bring Hayek here, it seemed to me, was, was in a sense, you know, if one's thinking of the turning points of history at the school, if one is 1895 and the creation of the school and the webs, I think this is, in a sense, is another great turning point in the history of the school as well, because it brings together two immense figures. Uh, Hayek, of course, much more theoretically sophisticated than Robbins. Robbins a much greater teacher. Robbins a popularizer, but nonetheless he brought out his great 1932 essay, which defined the nature of economics for another 30, 40 years on scarcity and uh, all the rest of it. Took it away from welfare economics, of course, quite easily. And in turn, they influenced another group of people who came through the school in the 1930s, Sir Arnold Plant, about, which not enough really is known, but had an enormous impact as a teacher. Ronald Coser, of course, who we all know today as the Coser Theorem, trained here in the 1930s under Arnold Plant, later went to Chicago, where, of course, he was awarded a Nobel Prize for economics and lived to the grand old age, I think, of about a about 101, and, and numbers of others as well. So although the economics department in the 1930s is a very diverse and very brilliant group of people, it includes within it Nicholas Caldor, it includes within it others who are clearly not in the free market tradition, Mead and many, many others as well. Nonetheless, this kind of really interesting group of people you know, are very, very powerful. I mean, in a sense, it, it's not the LSE versus Cambridge, because, but nonetheless, there is an LSE versus Cambridge party. It's the, the kind of de great debate, not only against collectivism, but also the great debate against Keynes. Now, of course, we know what happened to, to, to the ideas of these people. In a sense, they became entirely marginalized in a very real sense, in the 1950s and the 60s and some part of the early 60s, 70s. In India, for instance, I mean, if you mentioned Hayek, people apparently burst out laughing because they were following Joan Robinson, the great Cambridge economist. You know, they were following Keynes. They were following, if you like, the ideas of Harold Lasky on the socialist side. But something happened clearly in the 1970s which turned the tide economically in the world capitalist system and had a big impact then on the popularity of certain ideas. And it's not so coincidental, by the way, in 1974, it's 74, I think, Jim, when Hayek, in, uh, alongside Irv, uh, Murdoch, is, a, is, is awarded his, his Nobel Prize for economics. And later on, by the way, just in case you think this is unimportant, Mrs. Thatcher, of course, drew very deeply from many thinkers. Uh, I've always said she was one of the great Tories, and I mean that in an historical sense, not because I'm particularly profoundly in love with her. But um, she's one of the great Tories who actually does take ideas deeply seriously. She really does. I mean, she's a very interesting person from that point of view, whatever, whatever the left critics might want to say about her. And I think this is what makes her such an historically significant and interesting figure. And I mean, there's no question, if you look through her, you read through Charles Moore's two great biographies. I mean, you know, Mrs. Mrs. Thatcher read. She read a lot, and she thought a lot about what she was going to do and who she needed to be influenced by. Now, she drew quite deeply and what, from many, many writers, um, but one of those she cites three times in her own autobiography, and she comes back to him time and time and time again, is Hayek. You know, now, you could say, well, she's just trying to put an intellectual gloss on what she really wants to do, well, that doesn't really matter. That's a non-argument to me. Nonetheless, she reaches out for a series of ideas to kind of legitimize and mobilize, and once she reaches out to most and comes back to him time and time again is Hayek himself. By that stage, of course, he's no longer at the LSE, but nonetheless, and she says later on that one of the books that had influenced the most 
and one must take her her word, of course, was Hayek's great popular polemic of 1944, The Road to Serfdom, which has an enormous influence, enormous influence on political thinking and on economic thinking over the very, very, very long term. And he wrote that while he was still here at the LSE, indeed. I'm going to come on to one final point on this, and I'll, I'll shut up and then... No, I'd like, actually, it would be nice let me just tell us a little bit about it. Well, I think, well, I mean, the, the book started... The book be, there's a whole history of the history of the road to serfdom. It actually began here in the 1930s. There's a whole history, historiography of the road to serfdom. He wanted to start writing... He started writing it in 34 and 35, when he was combating the collectivists, largely the webs, and he went into the whole debate about economic calculation, which came from a man called Baroni and, and von Mises, who said you can't get economic calculation under socialism. With no prices, you don't know how to calculate anything. There's no way of measuring anything. It's, 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 it's pretty, pretty standard stuff, actually. And, uh, and so from that, he wanted to write something. But, and he went through a whole bunch of discussions in the 1930s, both here with Robbins and with others, the war, as they say, came along, <laughs> intervened somewhat and slowed down the process. And then in 44, he brought the book out. The book did very badly, actually, in Britain. In fact, it didn't sell very well at all in Britain. Where it sold extraordinarily well, by the way, was the United States. And one of the reasons it sold so well in the United States, here comes an interesting story, but who, who cares? Uh, Reader's Digest picked it up and popularized it. Now, they cut out the maybe complicated bits and various other things. Um, but nonetheless, the book itself had a profound influence. I think it went on to sell about 600,000 copies. And it, I think it formed the ideological basis of what I would call the new right, what, what we later call the, the marketeers. Now, of course, I think you know, Hayek is a greater thinker than that. I think the Constitution of Liberty is actually a brilliant book, although I have some really profound problems with it. But I think that that particular book itself had an enormous influence in terms of the popular discourse. The other thing I'd say very, very quickly on this and end, on the economics department, and again, I'm always very careful to talk about my colleagues in the economics department, but I'm talking about history, not now. Um, it's quite interesting to see how ideas get established, how ideas become popularized. And there's a very interesting story to be told, which I hope to tell in the book which actually has how these ideas themselves don't just exist as ideas up there, how they get organized as ideas. And Hayek, again, was a great organizer. And by the way, here he learned from the Fabians. He thought the webs had been terrifically, terrifically uh, brilliant as organizers of an idea. And he said, let's borrow from the Fabians, but do the other side. <laughs> like, we'll do the individualism, we'll do the market. We know the long history of a thing called the Mont Pelerin Society, which was formed in 1950. I don't want to get into conspiracies, it's not about that. And how that brought together a whole group of people in the 50s and 60s and the 70s. By the way, in this country, one of the great pr promoters of the free market ideas was the Institute of Economic Affairs. Uh, that was organized, by the way, by a former PhD from, from, from the LSE, uh, Arthur Selden who played a huge role through the Institute of Economic Affairs, a man called Harris, and a number of others who promoted these ideas, kept these ideas alive in the 60s and 70s, and took these ideas forward into the 1980s. And they then had a big impact on the group who were anti-Heath, who wanted to take Britain in an entirely new, non-corporatist well, non direction, mm -hmm. and had a really big impact in shaping the ideas and popularizing some of these ideas. So in that sense, part of my, one of the chapters in the book is going to be Thatcher's thinkers. And, and in some senses, there were many thinkers, but it, it, some don't even believe what I'm saying. But in some senses, the LSE economics department thus 
it seems to me, plays a really quite large role in this. So while at the same time they play a huge role in the rise of social democracy and the welfare state in this country, one they can be proud of, and nonetheless they also play another part in the great debates in, in this country, which takes us in an entirely different uh, political and economic direction. Okay, thank you very much uh, on that. We've, um, we've still got good time, so um, Camden, we can move over to additional people, Hayek too, but also Oakshot and Popper. So what, what I'd like to do is say something a little bit about each of these three figures, uh, and also quite a lot about Hayek still, um, mm. whom uh, Beatrice Webb described, I think, as always our nemesis in the school. Yeah. Hayek was there from 1933 to 1950. He, he left because his, uh, his childhood sweetheart uh, became a widow, yeah, and he true. left his wife and, um, uh, yeah. and married her. And Lionel, Lionel Robbins would never speak to him after that, so he left for Chicago. They reconciled yeah, yeah. sometime um, later at a funeral. Um, and there's, there's something interesting about that then trajectory that Hayek followed. He, he came here in 1931 um, first to, to give some lectures. He was subsequently uh, hired as the as a took professor of economics and statistics. Um, I actually met Ronald Coase once and asked him about Hayek and what Hayek's contribution was, and he said, you know, I didn't think Hayek's a very good economist, um, but what he did was he made us much more rigorous. Um, and Hayek was someone who was actually very, very interested in methodology. And I, th and I think this is important not just for the anecdotal aspect of it, but because really Hayek, and I'm going to say the same thing about Oakshot and Popper in a moment, was really someone whose methodological instincts and philosophical instincts were profoundly at odds with the LSEs. Um, he came into economics as someone who was not only skeptical about socialism, which he became uh, in the 1920s, having started off his life as a socialist, but he was very, very skeptical about socialism because of what you mentioned to be the, the calculation problem. How can you have a, um, a, an economy which allocates um, uh, goods uh, that were scarce if you didn't have some sort of pricing mechanism. But on the basis of this, he then started to reflect a little bit deeper and say, well, actually, um, how do you even think about you know, goods as if they were simply you know, things out there in the world? How do you think about the world as being somehow made up of data in the way that the positives had, positivists had suggested? And what he came to argue was, look, our whole way of thinking about economics as a as a kind of technology for solving mm. allocation problems is a mistake because we haven't got fixed you know, people who need things allocated to them and fixed goods that needed to be allocated. What you has, had was a world in which all of these things were highly contingent. What people wanted was in no way determined by um, some kind of set of abstract preferences they had before what was created, determined what they wanted, what they wanted had an effect on what they what they created. There was no way you could address this problem in a sensible way uh, as a technologist. Um, you had to, th to rethink the whole of economic science. Now, I don't think he was terribly successful in persuading his economic colleagues about this because economics was going in a very, very different direction, but that was the basis of his critique of socialism and also of 
of economic science and of, of political practice. So when he came to write The Road to Serfdom, what he offered was in part a critique of economic planning because he was worried about um, just the, the intellectual coherence of it and the, um, the, the practical possibility of it. But he said the real problem is actually not the allocation problem. The real problem is the transformation of consciousness that it will bring about. Because if you were going to have uh, economic planning, what you would have to do is you'd have to have planners. Uh, and this means that you're going to have to make a whole lot of assumptions about society that are just false. That people had needs and desires that were fixed, that you had goods that could be allocated, um, and you also needed to have people in authority who would go about the business of reconciling these two things. Yeah. And the only way they could reconcile these two things would be by bringing about a change in the way people thought. And here his big influences were actually not people in the history of economics. His big influences were, back in the 19th century, uh, Lord Acton, mm -hmm. historian, and Alexis de Tocqueville. Um, mm. He wanted to call the Montpelier Society originally um, the Acton-Tocqueville Society. Yes, he didn't have much of an ear for, you know, um, yeah. right. for, a, for a catchy phrase, except for the road to service. Um, but that was what he was concerned about. He thought that establishing a society with this kind of level of social control would lead to these problems. You would get a, 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 the rise of political authority, and even more importantly, what you'd get is a population that came to like it. So this is what he was really concerned about. So the whole Hayekian critique is really not about why the market is more efficient. No. Like his, his criticism of the 19th century liberals, he said, look, they just talk about laissez-faire as if this solves the problem, but that's not the problem. Mm. Um, the problem is not efficient allocation. The problem is the whole way of thinking about markets as if it's an allocation problem. Um, so in this way, he's really someone who's profoundly at odds with the school, mm. both in his political orientation, but also in his methodological outlook and his philosophical um, bent. So Hayek spent a lot of his time not just doing economics, but doing history. Mm. And he wrote a lot of economic history, a lot of history of economic ideas. Um, it's a very, very different kind of mm. thinker that you find in Hayek than you do in mm. um, in, in Keynes in, in Cambridge or in, in the webs in particular, that in Tawney or that in, that in Lasky. The, the unifying idea that you might um, find in Hayek, and this is what he himself would present, is a critique of rationalism. He called his um, um, book in the 1950s on the counter-revolution of science, Studies in the Abuse of Reason. So again, very much anti-web because he thought what you can't do is simply use reason in order to solve technological problems in order to produce the outcomes you deserve. Human society, human life was much too contingent and interdependent. You know, the technologies you produced would create different desires. So um, in this respect, um, Hayek has much in common then with the other two figures that I've mentioned, Karl Popper, whom Hayek brought to um, the LSE in the late 1940s from New Zealand, where you know, Popper was writing the, or had written the Open Society and its enemies, uh, and then Michael Oakeshott, who came to the LSE in the 1950s to succeed Harold Lasky. Popper um, is best known as a philosopher of science, but he also saw himself 
um, very much as a critique of positivism. I mean, his view about the nature of science insisted that it was not about you know, going off and collecting facts and, uh, and observing them and then drawing conclusions from this by uh, a process of induction. Now, there are lots of criticisms one might make about, um, uh, about Pop Popper's philosophy of science. I don't think it stood up well um, in lots of ways, but he was enormously influential. But the, the crucial thing about him that I think he shares with Hayek is this um, uh, critique of a certain kind of rationalism, the critique of a kind of view that says, well, look, science is a technology, and here's how we apply it, here's how we do it. And the dimension that Popper adds to this is the critique of historicism. His attack on um, the socialists was not really because of the politics, because Popper was himself, I think, much more sympathetic yeah. to, uh, to socialism generally. He was a social democrat. He, he came to the Montpelier Society at Hayek's invitation, but like quarreled it. with everyone. They all found him far too left-wing. He left in a half. It was, didn't work out at all well. He, he was not really a man of, uh, of the right. He was not a conservative, but he had this in common with, with Hayek. He was a critic uh, of rationalism. Michael Oakeshott, a very, very different figure again. Um, Popper was not really that engaged politically. Hayek was very engaged politically. Mm. His whole life from the 1930s onward, ever since the rise of Nazism, which was a big thing for him, um, pushed his whole career in a very, very practical political direction. His writing was always um, produced with that intention of shaping contemporary ideas. Popper was primarily a scientist, but he wrote the Open Society as, as he puts it, his contribution to the war effort. Yeah. Uh, Oakeshott was not at all interested in politics in, in any practical sense. The Conservative Party tried on many occasions to give him uh, various honours, a lordship or a knighthood, and he just turned them all down and said you should give honours to people who want them. You know, and he had no interest. <laughs> He was a kind of hyper-individualist, famous among other things for his essay on being conservative. But he was someone who wrote an essay called On Being Conservative, not on being a conservative, being on conservative. being conservative. He was conservative in a certain kind of understanding of this. And he says, nothing inconsistent about being a conservative on the one hand and being a radical on the other. He was a radical individualist. He had very, very little interest, therefore, in um, a certain kind of way of viewing the, the contemporary world, which he saw as collectivist in one, in one sense, anti-individualist you know, for someone like him, but also he saw it as something that was infused with a certain kind of rationalism. That's his term. His first book was oh, a collection of essays called On Rationalism in Politics. What is it that he was worried about what he was worried about was reducing all aspects of life to some kind of either rational construction or something that could be understood um, as um, an aspect of a rational whole. And what he wanted to say was, look, if you examine human society, there are lots of different ways of experiencing the world. Reason and science is one of them, but it's only one of them. Yes, very, very famous essay called The Voice of Poetry in the Conversation of Mankind. He says, you can't reduce any of this to rationality or to reason. They're just simply different modes of experience. And if you think about it in this way, then you can have no sympathy with those who want to organize and run the world as if 
it could be run on rational principles. So this is the, the, the kind of political end of, um, um, of, of Volkshaus thinking. So I think these three figures are unusual in the LSE because they, they really, in a way, um, stand for everything that the LSE doesn't stand for. Now, we still teach these people. I mean, I, I do occasionally. Um, and there are some people who, um, um, who've you know, taught um, the writings of Hayek and Popper and, and Oakeshott. But on the whole, they've, you know, they've disappeared a little bit into the, uh, into the background. Hayek has disappeared from economics. Um, Popper, I think, has disappeared from the philosophy of science. And, uh, and Oakeshott is, it's never really been a, a major figure in the history of political philosophy because he is so at odds with what um, the dominant kind of trend of thinking is today. And I think this is simply worth uh, you know, reflecting on and, and thinking about. And maybe this is a good way to at least conclude my own you know, reflections under the aspect of this theme, you know, one school and two visions. There really were two very, very different visions. And I think what's most interesting about the visions of, uh, or the, the, the outlook of these three figures is how anti-elitist they are, Popper and Oakeshott and Hayek, because their whole tendency is to reject the idea that an elite could run the world. Um, they think that this is, to quote Hayek, the road to serfdom. Uh, in different ways, this is what they, they argued. The, the technocrats uh, and the elitists were ironically uh, the webs. I, I'm, I'm uh, actually more confused than when I began because one of the things that uh, Mick, you, you took, said was, was that the, as it were, there was an, a, a fixed idea of what the idea of the LSE standing for was, which you called the taxi driver idea of this sort of solidly left-wing view. Um, but what you get in the history, uh, you, now then, Chandran, you're almost drawing on that when you say that these other figures. Uh, stand for everything um, the LSE doesn't stand for, but as it were, they're standing right in the middle of the LSE stand saying that. And so, mm -hmm. and, and it's only if you, as it were, hold on to the taxi driver's view of what the LSE stands for that they stand against it. Maybe the LSE is a much more complicated thing than oh, yeah. being, as it were, a predominantly left-wing yeah. space Look, I in I which I you have... Can I just... Well, one sure. one, Sorry, one no, last no, thought no, on that no, is no. that when, by the time we're looking at the 1970s, uh, when Maurice Fraser is here as a student, mm. and the, the, uh, for sure the taxi driver's view will still be out mm. in the forefront when uh, they'll say, oh, all these bloody left-wing students and so on. But actually, over on the right-hand side were all these bloody right-wing students who, who were still also very, uh, very uh, LSE people. Mm. And so how, uh, um, if we're looking into the 1970s where it's a very political place, Mm. For sure, and probably uh, far more than it is now. And it'd be perhaps interesting to hear some of your thoughts about what it is now, if it is anything now. Um, actually, uh, I, I was at a, a, a faculty meeting of the the whole um, membership of, of the, um, the the teaching body uh, when they were discussing whether to have fees at the LSE when when they were introduced, at what level they'd have them. And everybody in the country was basically going for the top, the 9,000 
uh, feeler l l limit. Uh, were you there on this on this date? Did you go? <laughs> it was hysterical because you had exactly the same thing. There were the people who say, "Yeah, nine thousand pounds, just charge the most or whatever anybody else is doing." And so, no, we can't. We can't. It's uh, you know, the, on principle, we can't f seem to be walking into the hands of the Tories on this. Uh, let's make it 8,500. It was... <laughs> right, okay, I don't know what this is about. But anyway, the, but the, the point is that... The, okay, whatever it is now, the, LS, the picture of the LSE, that, as it were, is a founding picture, has stayed very stable as the, as it were, the dominant ethos of the LSE. But I, do you think, of both of you now, uh, let's start with you, Mick, does it make much sense to talk about the dominant ethos of the LSE of course, in its founding, but as it were, in its history, what's the? Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, I think. I mean, I try to show. I mean, it's uh, you know, the web's imprinted the school in a pretty profound way for a fairly long time. Um, you know, I mean, they, they became synonymous with the school, as did indeed Shaw, and, and to a certain degree, to Graham Wallace. Although, put him in a slightly different category because he, in a sense, moved away into political psychology largely, which had a big influence in the United States. Some of the key figures who shaped the intellectual agendas at the LSE were clearly, in some broad sense, on the left. There's no question. I mentioned a few of them, and I think that tradition certainly continued, certainly through social policy, through sociology, through a number of other subjects areas through the 50s and into the 1960s. So, yeah, of course it was there. But I think it is. I mean, there's no point... You're not telling a single story about a single department. I mean, after all, the... The greatest, well, I don't say the greatest anthropologist, but certainly talking historically, talking one of the great anthropologists who founded social anthropology in the world was Bronislav Malinowski. Now, Malinowski was open to many political opinions, but I don't think anybody would ever say that Malinowski was a man on the left. Uh, you know, so there's a complicating factor straight away. Um, secondly, although he was quite open to left wing people being in his seminar, which is quite interesting, you get a whole bunch of left wing people from Africa, by the way, and also from the West Indies, who go through his seminar, which is a very, very interesting story in its own right, but he's not a man on the left himself. Um, take my own, my own wonderful subject, international relations, which I'm not sure, I'm not quite sure how to define it, but I'll try my best. But, you know, the dominant figure in international relations here at the school for 30 years was a man called Manning, Charles Manning, and I mean, I don't think anybody would ever confuse Manning with anything, even progressive, let alone socialist. If you look in your own government department in the 1950s, there were certainly, you know, when Lasky was, when poor Harold Lye died in 1950 and was replaced by Oakeshott, I, I think your complex appreciation of Oakeshott is well taken. But the shock, the shock of that appointment, particularly in India, but elsewhere where Lasky was gone, you know, political god was absolutely extraordinary. And within the government department, I mean, okay, there were many people, if you like, on the broader social democratic left, but I've just noted down uh, Leonard Shapiro, whom I knew actually personally, a Sovietologist of the strongest Cold War variety, uh, Eli Kaduri, a massively interesting mm. person, and many, many others, as we well know. So, now, of course, it's a, it's a very complicated and uh, thing. So I think we've got to be, and we're not trying to oversimplify, there's a left and there's, and there's the economic liberals and that's the end of the story. I mean there's gradation, there's a whole bunch of people out there probably not, don't even think about these things at all. Who just want to get on with their publications or digging their garden down in Bromley. You know, <laughs> so let's be perfectly honest, let's, let's not oversimplify the story, and I don't think we're trying to do, but I think it is fair enough to say that that tradition of the left 
has been there. I think it's imprinted itself on the history of the school, and it's still there in what I would call the kind of ethos mm. of the school. And I've noticed this time and again that people kind of want to avoid it, but you can't avoid it. You know, the social engagement, you know, the Inequalities Institute, all the things that are done, very engaged things that people are trying to do around the school. It may not be in the old collectivist tradition, because maybe we've moved beyond that, but it's still very much, it seems to me, in part of the critical tradition that the school should be different. And I get this from a lot of students, you know, I came here because I thought the school was different, not because, you know, I'm going to learn the economic and philosophical manuscripts of Karl Marx, but I'm going to learn something different. And I think that is an important part of that of that tradition. Where it is today, well, we could, that, is a, that's, that takes you into a, an, in a new area, it seems to me. Okay, How you well, maintain maybe, that. maybe we shouldn't talk about people who are still alive. So, no, I don't um, mind. I'm still alive, so I don't <laughs> mind talking about myself. Or even, <laughs> even uh, but look, we've got some questions now, and then we'll have to finish up. There's, there's one there and then one down here. I did my undergrad and master's here, and Chandra taught me for both, so hi. Um, I suppose my question is, you mentioned the ethos of the school, and you don't necessarily want to talk about your colleagues, but the students, um, while I was here, and still in this last year, developed a certain ethos of, how do I put this, uh, they banned everything. They banned the sun, they banned songs, they banned Richard Dawkins from coming, that was a weird one. Uh, and I'm wondering what you think of the ethos of LSE kind of philosophically within the student body and whether that's impacted by today's academics or whether that's very much the opposite of what you think the ethos of LSE today is and students are rebelling by censoring. Safe spaces. Does anybody want to dare talk about that? <laughs> well, I think there's a problem. He said, I think there's a problem. Well, no, I didn't... <laughs> go on, go I, on, I, Sure. Um, <laughs> oh, I'll have a go at it. I don't think this is a, um, a problem peculiar to the LSE. I mean, I think this is um, something that's reflective of student bodies around the country and maybe even just a, across the, the Western world more generally. It's certainly an issue in the United States where um, you know, many comedians have said they, they just won't go on campus anymore because... Um, there's, there's too much uh, anxiety about um, giving offence. Now, I, you know, I don't know to what degree this is a problem in, in all the various campuses, but I think in this particular case it's not something that comes out of the LSE. I think this is something that's coming out of somewhere mm. else, and I, you know, I, I, I don't have an analysis or an explanation for it. Um, I mean, I can make things up, but <laughs> you shouldn't do that if you're you know, at the LSE, because we, we use facts and, <laughs> and science to determine things, not just uh, mere opinion. So. Mm. Yeah. Okay, we avoided that. So, uh, down here. Hi, I just actually got my PhD at the European Institute, and I was talking to an uh, Oxford-educated Tory politician the other day who told me, because we were talking about LSE, and he's just rolling his eyes and saying, oh, LSE is so un-English. And I'm sort of un-English. Un-English. And he actually used those words, and I was that, actually right? really fascinated, sort of this relationship and perspective of LSE as <laughs> un-English or international or whatever. It's like just <laughs> really, really curious about your comments on that. Oh, yeah, I think I can talk to that one. Um, I, I, you know, this kind of notion of un-English is so weird. The only country in the world that actually used the word un before a country has been un-American. You remember McCarthy in the 1950s, somebody's un-American. Un-English sounds very, very weird, doesn't it? Very, very strange. 
I mean, particularly in a country whose uh, royal family has never been English since 1066. Uh, you know, we had the French, we had the Welsh, we had the Germans, you know, I mean, goodness sake. I mean, what, how un-English can the country be other than this country? Um, and the school was set up as an un-English institution, and jolly good job too. I mean, one of the things I would say about the Webs, they were very keen on two, two particular groups of people coming to the school in terms of students, and they made it quite clear. And this was part of the tradition of the University of London, and by the way, not part of the tradition of, of Cambridge and Oxford to anything like the same degree as women, uh, and secondly, foreigners. Uh, they were quite clear, and, and part of that was also to do with empire. London was the heart not only of, of Britain, London was the heart of the, of the great British empire, great or not so great. And they were quite clear that it was an imperial city. And, and in some sense, his LSE was imperial. And they, they made an enormous effort, and very successful effort, to bring in people uh, from overseas, meaning you know, outside of the UK. And were extraordinarily successful at that. And, um, and, I, and to me, being un-English is wonderful. I'm totally in favor of that. And that actually what makes the LSE an interesting place to be. Uh, and, long, and long may it remain. I mean, just to give you one example of how un-English this institution was, in the 1930s, under, under the direction and leadership of Beveridge, about whom I've got some criticisms, by the way, I don't idealize Beveridge, um, but he, say, he set up an institution to bring in Jewish and overseas people in, in Austria and Germany, socialist or whatever, right across the political board, to save them from the, from the barbarities of fascism. And we brought lots and lots and lots of un-English people to this school from Karl Mannheim through a whole bunch of others who go through Popper even was one of those in a sense and so you know good long may it remain as un-English as possible and uh, that's its strength and I think that remains its strength today I think that's pretty clear I think yes, I think I got that one right actually yeah, interesting. Okay. Somebody at Oxford actually says that. I'm amazing. Uh, one there, and then one there, and we may be out then. So keep it short, if you don't mind. Uh, the back one. All right, I'll try and keep this very short. Uh, there's a sort of an interesting uh, feature of the uh, debate around academic economics at the moment, yes. um, which is that academic economics is deeply opposed to the, the sort of economic policies which large numbers of governments are taking. And yet, uh, sort of in, from a policy perspective, they're, they're just largely being ignored. Um, I wonder how much of that can be sort of traced to a kind of intellectual history which speaks to this particular conflict, mm. which is that uh, the, there's this undercurrent of an attempt to, to try and separate uh, both science and, and the scientific approaches from, from politics, almost to treat them as if these aren't related things, as if sort of scientific conclusions can't have political conclusions. Mm. And to a degree, the, the, the idea that uh, sort of Popper, Hayek, and Oakeshott somehow represent uh, a, a sort of a different school, represents the degree to which they, they sort of won that particular debate. They, they managed to successfully convince us that there is this difference between science and politics. Mm. And... Possibly that's the debate which we're actually discussing. It's not really a, sort of a two visions, but a, a loss of a, a particular debate around a particular idea. Yeah, yeah I, I don't think they won the debate. I mean, I think Hayek certainly uh, won the debate about planning, um, but I don't think the, the debate about um, positivist social science and social science in the service of government uh, won the day by any means and to just give you one very very simple example um, the um, 
the infatuation of the present government with happiness and nudging. I mean, this is all you know, modern social science in the service of making people uh, happier. You're using you know, the best research um, in order to, you know, to manipulate and guide society with some particular end in view. I mean, okay, so it's not uh, gross national product, uh, but it's happiness instead, but it's in the same style of politics. I mm. think, you know, um, someone like Hayek or Oakshot would have had no time for this, but right. this is the style of uh, politics that still remains with us. Well, I I, think, I, yeah. I'm going to say something very quick because you're going to stop me from saying it, so I say it now. I wish I could read economics today, personally. I mean, I, I love reading economic history and economics. The great Joseph Schumpeter. I can actually read Robbins and understand him. I can read Hayek on economics. I can read the great 19th century economists. Uh, I can even, you know, I can, I can go back to Smith. I can read that. I can understand it. My real problem as a kind of an intelligent citizen of the world, which I hope I am, English or otherwise, is to say, why can't I read economics today, the top economic journals, and kind of think, A, I can understand this, and B, I need an advanced degree in mathematics. And, but, and secondly, as Mary Morgan has pointed out in this school, it's lost its history. Where, where's the historical side of economics? It's gone. So it, it may be technically brilliant, and I'm sure it gets the highest ratings, you know, in our, in our new research culture. But it worries me that, you know, I, I think I'm a relatively intelligent person who likes reading this stuff. I find it very difficult to understand what Stop. it is they're saying. Mick, thank you. <laughs> okay, last, last yep. question. Yep. Very quick, if you don't mind. Thank, thanks for a very fascinating talk. Um, I, I, in fact, got a place here in the 60s and, and was advised, don't come here, there are too many strikes, you won't get any education. So, but anyway, I, I went to Sussex with its sort of new model of learning, yes. interdisciplinary, yeah. counter-positivist, yeah. counter-Cartesian, and so forth. Um, and I'm sort of wondering, in, in the discussion here, um, is there some sort of historical insularity yeah. with which perhaps British philosophy and um, enlightenment is somewhat infamous in the sense, you know, um, uh, with suddenly a huge interest, which is very exciting, in, in ancient Greek um, and Roman thought. And of course, this is, uh, the, this is the roots in which German critical philosophy, hermeneutic, dialectical develops. So I, I was wondering, was there any sort of cross-historical or going back to the past or was it just ditched you know the ancient Greeks and all their you know all their insights and that sort of thing what happened there? Um, <clears throat> well I think you've probably just got to look at the subjects that are, that are taught here because it's a school of social science um, we've got some history we've got some um, mathematics but we don't have um, uh, much in the way of languages there's uh, not much um, in the way of literature so you're going to get a different kind of perspective. You don't have classics. Um, I don't think it's because these things have been shunned. I don't think people are hostile to them. But um, if that's what your university is made up of, then these things are going to you know, not appear in the curriculum. And also, those sorts of scholars aren't going to be here. You're not going to have medieval historians. And so this is going to change the character of the place a little bit. I don't think it's because there's an explicit rejection of it, but that's going to be the nature of the place. You know. It's going to be shaped by the people who are here. I think it is a sort of explicit rejection of it. I think that um, uh, the positivist origins that you've been talking about, where it's all about facts and science and all this sort of stuff, the idea of finding yourself by returning into your history 
is, is lost. Anyway, I'm the professor of European philosophy at the LSE, and so it's not completely gone. Um, but we're going to have to end here. And uh, Mick, for your love of ideas and your suspicion of contemporary economics, we can thank no, no, you. No, 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 and Chandra, for, you, for your commitment to giving the causes of things and not just opinion, we thank you both, LSE members. Thank members. you very much.